Welcome to Record Crimes. In each episode, we'll be getting into anything from copyright legal battles, crimes committed by people in the music industry, and and everything everything in between. People in the music industry? Doing illegal things? Really? It's better and better. Stop. (laughs) I blame it on the Peaky Blinders. I haven't seen it. For anyone that hasn't seen it, it's like the greatest TV show. I think I've been watching it ever since it came out. Bold statement. It is. You know, it's probably a lie from me too. Yeah, I feel like I'm just obsessed with its comfort at this point. I've watched all. I think there's five seasons, six seasons now. Oh, I've watched all six through and through. About ten times now. Wow. Which is why I think my Cockney accent is so great. And that's a word <laughs> for it, for your accent. Great. But I recently just got through it again. Slay. I was also telling Alyssa before this episode that I'm listening to a lot of John Mayer recently. So random. Also a little controversial in light of the recent Taylor Swift dropping the next album date yeah. with the heroic song of Dear John. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't even tell you why. John Mayer, count your days. Count your days. But I was telling Liz that, what was the one album that you didn't like it? Oh, it's fucking whatever. He's like in a cowboy hat and mm-hmm. like he's on in a field looking. Something wild. Pondering. Wild and free. Wild heart and free. Or something. Wild heart. Something stupid. Wild. I don't something, know. Something, something. But that's like as most country as I can probably stand at this moment. Is it considered like a country album? No. I didn't like that album. I thought it was bad. And unfortunately, when I was able to see him touring, that was like the album he was touring. Mm -hmm. I don't think even he likes that album. He was so boring. I was like, where is like the stage presence? There's a lot of like very upsetting songs on that album. Maybe he just needed to get something out, but like didn't need to fully deliver on it. I guess. He was just like in his own world in that concert. But also, you know, when you have a lot of albums... And you have a lot of, like, big hits. Mm-hmm. Like, big, big hits. Yeah. You want to... The audience, yes, they'll come to hear your album you're touring on, but, like, play some hits. They want They want the hits. He, like, didn't play all of his good hits. Like, no, he played, no, like, one or two, um, and I was like... Ugh. Waiting on the world to change. That's not even the good... That's not even a good one. I'm just saying. It's I was a, like, fine. That's, like, a classic. That, if you're it talking, like, classic. main hits, like, for people that don't know him... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just remember, I don't really remember like the set list or anything. It was like a long time ago, but he, I remember being pretty disappointed. And then I was talking to someone at Berkeley about it and they were like, oh, I've seen John Mayer a million times. And I. Berkeley's number one dropout. Yeah. He like went there for like two semesters. Like if, yeah. My voice instructor, like my first year no, I, it was like first or second semester. Apparently her roommate like casually dated him. Amazing. And she was She's like. She's probably got a song on one of his albums. Oh, maybe. All the ladies do. No, I think he was like already a player at that point too. Mm. She would always be like, oh yeah, John. Like I'd be like, girl, first name, face, <laughs> yo, John. I, I love it. I know. 
It's just like Stop, silly. <laughs> like, why are you doing that, girl? It's not like you dated him. No. <laughs> John, John. I know someone that knew someone that was roommates with someone's cousin who dated him. Yeah, basically. Basically. Your roommate's boyfriend is, like, never as close to you as you think they are. Was I, as a roommate, nothing to you? I am the best third wheel of all time. No, you really are. Like I say, the tricycle wheel is in the front. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my family thought we were, like, a thruple for... They're probably solid for a very long time. I like to keep them guessing. Yeah. Because we would just, we would just always be together all the time. And when I took you up to my family's, like my family's lake house, I, (laughs) we just have all these cute pictures and they're really cute. I love them. Yeah. But we're all like snuggling all together, like by the fire. And like, it's like, (laughs) Like, I get it. Like <laughs> You're like, me, my boyfriend, and technically my girlfriend, my, but my roommate. Me and my... We always... I, I really like how we used to just introduce... They were roommates. We are the epitome of that saying. And they were roommates. And they were roommates. Roommates. Um, quote, air quotes. Well, kind of related to your lake house and kind of related to John Mayer. I've been... And kind of related to me just, like, watching TV shows... Okay. I have been really obsessed with this one show called Farmer Needs a Wife. Um, Not even Farmer Wants. Or maybe it's Wants. Farmer Wants a Wife? Farmer Needs a Wife? No, I think it's Farmer Wants a Wife. JK. Is that... It is so funny. It is literally the cowboy version of The Bachelor where they get four cowboys who are trying to find a wife. Is it cowboys or farmers? They're different, I think. Everyone on this... It's a cowboy. It's a cowboy or a ranch, a oh. rancher. So I, that's why I think cowboys, because they all have cattle. I see. And crops, but oh. all of them definitely have cattle. What I think is so funny is that they're not even, all four of these guys are like, I've never had a successful relationship, but I want a wife. So they skip like the girlfriend oh, zone. And so there's these four cowboys. They were like, I'm actually just going to skip the middleman here and yeah. I'm just going to wed Go someone on this, yeah, immediately. Well, exactly. Well, so it's these four cowboys and then they go on this show and about a hundred women send in their like dating applications per, per guy. God. And then he narrows it down to 12. And then on the first night he narrows it down to six and then he takes six back all four of them. So 24 women total get taken back to their farmer of choice farm. Okay. And they live on the farm and then they get eliminated like after each week. And when he's like, it's literally the bachelor. He's like, I don't see myself like progressing with you and all this other stuff. And right now I'm on the episode where like each farmer has like narrowed it down to the last two. Okay. So he's going home to meet their families. And some of these women are just like born and raised like city fast Mm. life. And they're like, I just really want to change. And they're like 22. Okay. They're like 22 and they're like, I'm ready to settle down with a nice, nice boy in a quiet town. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I mean, yeah. You can do that without getting married or with the boy. You can just move to a yeah. quiet town. Like some of these, they're like from Florida and from California or Arizona. And then the cowboy's like, are you going to be ready to move to Oklahoma in a week and live with me on my farm you where pay there's me. no neighbors for 10 miles? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. And these, no, the, it's so, they're so bad with like social cues. Cause they're like, my farm is my life. And I, I spend every day out here and I have to, and I'm all by myself and it's my livelihood. And like, you just see how bad they are at dating and they're trying to get married. 
That shit is funny to me. Uh, that I've been obsessed. The better the, than the Bachelor. Better than the Bachelorette, hands down. More real, more cringe. A lot of really bold statements about TV, and I, I like it. Love it. And you know what I love more about it is the fact that the original Farmer Wants a Wife or the Farmer Wants a Wife mm-hmm. is from Australia. It's oh. an Australian TV series that they brought to the U.S. for the um, first time this season. You know, I, I think I'd be interested in watching, like, one that's not in the U.S. for some reason. Very that seems more fun to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I think of Australia, I don't think of farming. But there's so no, much open space. Yeah, I was going to say, I, th- I think I, I think see of that, definitely. kangaroos and Sydney and Finding Nemo in the Opera House. I don't think of the Outback being a farmable place, but it is... Hey. That's the that's why that place exists. Like those I mean, people they have to be yeah. out there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how else would they? And those guys are some of them are actually farmers. Like they don't have cattle. They have like crops and stuff. Fun. Yeah, dude, it's so funny. Ugh, I'm obsessed. I love this. I the amount of the Bachelor type shows that are on right now are just in in history. The way that that just changed, just the, like dating the shows dating in general. Game. Yeah, literally, so it, like it, there used to be all those dating games and like what's yeah. behind lucky door number one. I think those ones are funnier. I oh, like yeah. those ones better. I don't like those the... ones are more absurd and exciting. Yeah, Love I don't is know. Blind. Oh God, I Love... can't stand that show. I've watched the first, I think, two seasons of that show, and it stopped interesting me because they're all hot. I'm like, they don't need to be hidden. I just need like a real you, okay. I need a realistic looking person. All these people like look like influencers. Yeah. And I'm like, those are the people where being blind is the most important, Alyssa. And they're Maybe all they, I feel so like they annoying. Really, yes. Oh my God. They're like, all of them are boring. I'm like, please. I've had enough. I've the had enough The only thing interesting you. about you is the way that you look. Yeah. Is that really shitty? No. <laughs> <laughs> can talk about something else. Let's see. Oh, I've been... My sleep schedule is completely messed up. Yes. Um, it's kind of fun, though. Naturally, I want to go to bed at 10 p.m. You know, I just, that's never been me. I know. But sometimes it just gets worse. It's been real bad lately, like, to the point where I'm actually a little annoyed. But <laughs> it is kind of fun to, like, see what's going on late at night. Like, um, in the like it, during the witching hours of this place? Yeah, That's like, actually scary. That's why I go to sleep. Because if I'm awake, I feel like I wouldn't sleep. Like, I look at weird happens. parts of the internet. I like, go down <gasps> oh, some weird no. rabbit holes. No. Um, not, like, scary ones. We're losing you. I'm going like to have to, like, tie ones. a rope around your waist. No, it's fine. Just hold on it's to the other end. Right. Yeah, I went down a really bad rabbit hole. Not bad. Like, a crazy rabbit hole the other night about um, Acacia Brindley. You know about you know her? She started on Tumblr, and she was, like, the Tumblr girl. Like, oh. she had, like, the swoopy bangs and the mm-hmm. fucking meow thing going on raw xd yes 100 percent. snake bites no i think she had fake, fake. ones at one point <laughs> she had fake ones at one point i think anyway someone like laid out her entire like she's very controversial like she's okay. not like she's still active i'm guessing no on the internet? uh she recently returned to the internet after like a year or so but she's now like she's been married she has three kids now and she's divorced i guess she just came back and is like hey i'm divorced and here I am. Uh, but she's also like, for a while, she was like a mommy influencer, that kind of thing. Okay. And that was like a little problematic too. Right. Yeah. She just has like a long history of being problematic and like being like, 
I'm sorry. I'm just so anxious all the time. Oh. And it's like, girl, you're doing this to yourself. Yeah. Um, how have you not learned after <clears throat> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. Oh, incredible. <laughs> I, had a, I had a great time. But yeah, I've been going down some weird rabbit holes of like people on the internet that I feel like I have parasocial relationships with <clears throat> where I'm like, what's going on here? What 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 are you up to? It's like time to check my apps, time to check my people. Yeah. <laughs> what's going on in this person's life? I'm like, oh, well, you deleted that one picture of you with your weird boyfriend. I wonder what's going on there. Let's try to stalk them. That's what I've been doing. Amazing. It's been fun. I feel like a little detective. Hire Alyssa for all your sleuthing needs. Oh, I'm so good. Yeah, I know. I believe it. I, at least I know if like if I ever go missing, like you're going to find me before anyone else. Before I the will police. find you. And probably come get me. I will hopefully. get you. I will hurt real bad whoever took you throat punch okay well we're back with a joint episode for you guys welcome back um to very excited <laughs> i like our little solo episodes those are always fun adventures they stress me out i'm not gonna lie they are fun though oh i do love diving into a topic like so yeah it's pretty on intensely it sucks up my whole life i love it just okay, kidding weirdo. i don't love she likes about death, it but here we are the one that i brought today I'm, I'm excited about it okay? because I realized that we haven't really touched on the topic of songs that have inspired crimes. Yeah, I guess we haven't, huh? Yeah. Unfortunately, because the songs like inspired the crimes, yeah. media and the masses will be very quick to blame the band. Yeah, I can see that. I've mm-hmm. definitely heard, I've so probably it, heard of these. Yeah. Or some and of so it like... It ruins the band's image or, like, really affects their success or their career. And I just find that unfortunate and very interesting. And there's a lot of songs like this that even the most famous of terrible people have, like, quoted being, like, I was inspired. You hear it all the time. And I was like, I think it's time. even with your John Lennon case. Exactly. Well, not song, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I'd bring it on today. I love it. And then, actually, my roommate, Sophie... Patricus, who we're going to have on this pod Slay. one day because she's a kick-ass bass player. The best of the bit. In and the biz. a amazing person. But she was like, have you talked about this? And then when I looked into this song, I realized that there was more than one very unfortunate event that came out or was inspired. The just people were inspired song? by the song. Oh, yes. shit. Okay. And all right. Why don't I just get into Just it? get into it, girl. I'm going to do... <laughs> The bodies hit the floor. Oh, murders shit. and crimes. Okay, okay. Uh, by the band Drowning Pool. Wow. Which we've definitely heard this song. It is a staple of like metal grunge and like mosh pit culture. Angsty teen moment. Very angsty, very loud. Yeah. Um, like I said before, this was a song that initially was recorded and for all intents and purposes was not inspired by something violent in nature. But as I will read into the history and stuff, we kind of see how other life events change the perception of this song. And then people adapted and, you know, misinterpreted themselves and did really terrible things. But as we know, like, music has been a powerful tool to, like, express emotion and 
you know, literally, I don't know, anything that you will ever feel like under the sun. So there are insane people out there that like to misinterpret the meanings of songs to justify or inspire their violent actions, which is ugly and disgusting of them. Rude. In my section, we are going to see how people like this makes these artists look terrible in turn and lead people to blame the artist Mm -hmm. for someone else's actions because it's easy to find a scapegoat in people that live in the spotlight. So I am going to talk about the history of the band and kind of the creation of the song and then we'll get into the nitty gritty. I do want to put a trigger warning that this story of mine includes horrific murder deaths and also mass shootings and I know there's been a lot of that lately which is I wasn't too happy to find out that this was related right but also in light of everything that's happening I think it's good to talk about it okay like I said the song that I'm talking about is bodies that was written in 2001 by the band Drowning Pool. The beginning of this band, like the creation of this band, actually starts with Pantera. What? Who you talked about in an earlier episode. And Pantera was able to lure guitarist CJ Pierce and drummer Mike Luce out of the New Orleans jazz and sparse metal scene and then out to Texas for a new awakening of metal groove bands. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you have this really awesome guitarist and this really awesome drummer in New Orleans who are just growing up with that jazz scene and they're like, yeah. hey guys, like you can actually do shit like come out to texas right it's pantera so you're gonna say no the band took their name from the 1975 paul newman neo-noir film called the drowning pool which is based on a novel by ross mcdonald while in texas pierce and loose met up with bassist stevie benton and became an instrumental trio Um, Not too long after, they eventually found their lead vocalist, Dave Williams, whose iconic growl and snarl to his vocals would complement the trio's heavy groove sound. Williams was also said to have brought a serious party animal energy to the band, which eventually helped to cement the band's live performance appeal and reputation. Right. So basically, they were amazing to see live now that you have all four of them together. Okay. Williams was given the nickname Stage by Dimebag Daryl, who was... The nicknamed become the nicknamer. Exactly. Due to his committed live performances, so he was like, that's Stage right there because he owns it. it. So in the early days, the band's interests were less about the global conquest and more how they could fund their party lifestyle. Yeah. They would play open spots wherever they can find them in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. And all this time, they would be working on songs that would make up their debut album, Sinner. You know, as they would be playing all these shows, their reputations as a live band grew, and so did the turnout rate, usually between 500 and 600 people for some of these, like, smaller concerts. Mm -hmm. And it was these crowds that would inspire the single bodies off of the album Sinner. Okay. That we're actually going to be talking about. Right. The bassist, Stevie, says, quote, We played shows where people were just everywhere, climbing on the stage, into the rafters, and diving off. That's where this let the bodies hit the floor idea first came in. Um, (laughs) And then the guitarist CJ says, uh, we had this one friend that always tried to stage dive, even if there were only like nine people in the crowd, which guaranteed he was going to hit the floor pretty much every time. One time he jumped off and shattered his knee in four places. Ugh. So this is kind of like, like I said, that mosh culture and that like crazy thrashing, very intense, very loud. Everyone's going nuts in a small venue. It looks so fun when I see videos of people like Mm -hmm. moshing and stuff. But then I know in practice, I myself would truly have the world's biggest panic attack. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it looks so fun. I'm like, oh, y'all are having fun. Y'all are having, y'all so, are having much so much fun. I like the way my face looks right now. So I just know people get like black eyes so easily. Oh, I was like, yeah, it's beautiful. Why are you saying that? I was like, where's she going like, with this? I do not want a black eye. No desire. I think I'd look hot with a black eye. I think I've already said this before. Yes. I think you said it during our eyes, right? I would. Actually. I'm just saying I would look hot with a black eye. (laughs) (laughs) In like a fun way, not in like a scary way. In what way would it be fun? If I like, if it was like a silly little accident, like a cartoonish type. Oh, I slipped on a banana banana peel. peel Wait, no, it's that episode from Spongebob where the toothpaste cap hits his eye. That'd be that's the only way I want to get one. Okay, I'm just gonna put that out in the universe. The song Bodies took a little while to finesse, but it used a guitar riff from the early days of like the three instrumental trio. And then they kind of shaped it along with the countdown from the song, which is like the one nothing wrong with me too. Yeah, yeah. Three, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then filling in the holes later with the lyrics. So that's kind of how it was written. Drowning Pool ultimately got signed by Wind Up Records, home of the post-grunge superstars Creed. Oh, okay. Uh, surprisingly, it wasn't the song for which they became best known. And that grabbed the label's attention. Stevie states, we recorded this song, Tearaway, that local radio stations really liked and ended up playing lots. But when Wind Up heard the full record, they said they were going with Bodies as the first single instead. So they caught the attention of this record labeled with Tearaway, mm-hmm. and that got massive radio play. Right. And they were like, hi, we actually wrote a whole album. Mm-hmm. And then they played it and they're like, oh, Bodies, that's our single. I want to be the person that like picks the singles. I feel like I'd be good at it. I think so too. Just feel like I know which ones are bops on the albums. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. Just say it. (laughs) Better call up John Mayer anyway. (laughs) I don't want to. Um, So the song Bodies was released on May 14th in 2001. And it would make um, its way up the charts, landing number six on the U.S. charts at its peak. They would make an appearance on the 2001 OzFest tour, where they joined the likes of Black Sabbath, Slipknot, and Linkin Park. So, our guy Ozzy on his crazy rock tour. So, I mean, they released this song same year they go on this tour, which is... With nuts the, with all these headliners right right with the crowd okay so but the song was being played heavily on radio and on mtv um uh, making the song the band like a part of like metal's top tier bands now okay however when 9-11 happened in september because the song got released in may just months after the song's release it was unofficially banned from radio play deeming its lyrics inappropriate oh yeah so in turn, this kickstarted a trend for misinterpreting the song's lyrics to link to acts of violence. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they obviously weren't, they, like the song was inspired by mosh pit culture. Right. So nothing violent, but then 9-11 happened and... The radio stations were like, mm, too soon. Too soon. But yeah, that basically started the downfall for the song. Wow. In terms of media perception and people who hadn't heard it at all and their perception of it. So it really kind of fucked it up for the band, unfortunately. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the let the bodies hit the floor is a line that has been massively in- misinterpreted over the years. And the entire song is, quote, a love letter to the mosh pit, a celebration of the most 
primal, glorious ways of partying, which was a quote from the band. <laughs> Stevie also says, quote, it's always really frustrating to me that people took this song that was about kids at a rock show and put all these negative connotations to it. When Clear Channel just struck it off, they made it seem like there was a reason for it to be banned. It took away the ambiguity of the song and people's ability to decide on the meaning for themselves. Right. Which I think states it really nicely. Yeah. Bodies has continued to be misinterpreted in the mainstream media from time to time in the two decades since its release, which includes reports saying it was used by interrogators at Guantanamo Bay detention camps. What? Yes. So apparently the song's loud nature and repetitive lyrics were great for noise torture. Being played with, quote, tracks by Marilyn Manson, Britney Spears, the Bee Gees, and Barney the Dinosaur. Wait, this is real? Like, this yes. is a real thing that yes. happened? Yes. What? And um, I what? said, how dare you bring my Bee Gees into this? Um, side note. Um, <laughs> Mohammed Adu Uld Slahi. Sorry if I butchered that. Um, who was held for 14 years without a charge. Oh, recalled a 10-day interrogation in which bodies would be blasted at him in conjunction with strobing lights. What? Yeah, so this was like a tactic that our military used. As like a torture thing. And I know I've heard and I've seen it like, you know, on TV and in movies where they would like blast really loud music. Zero Dark Thirty comes to mind when they put them in like a like a quiet, like not even quiet, a dark room, no light. And they're just blasting metal music in an attempt to get people to break. And so this happened. And then that is so troubling. Stevie said again, quote, people assume we should be offended that somebody in the military thinks our song is annoying enough that played over and over. It can psychologically break someone down. I take it as an honor to think that perhaps our song could be used to quell another 9-11 attack or something like that. If they detain these people and the worst thing happens is they have to sit through a few hours of loud music. Some kids in America pay for that. It doesn't seem all that bad to me. He later said his remarks had been taken out of context with that <laughs> quote. I was going to say, they I was like, what, how, who? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so there's, yeah, there's reports saying that it was used for like noise torture in camps for like, you know, attempts to crack down on the terrorism threats overseas okay Mm -hmm. that is so insane right okay so i have two following incidences and this is like again another trigger warning mass shootings i'm going to talk about another shootings these are the two like main incidences that kind of caught the tabloids okay unfortunately so in february of 2003 Joshua Cook, who was 19 years old, also known as the Matrix Killer, murdered both of his parents in his basement with a shotgun while playing bodies through his headphones. The case is very layered with the evidence and reasoning behind his actions. However, all the media in his life was blamed for his actions rather than himself. Okay. Yeah. But he ultimately took responsibility for his actions in contradiction to his defense team and pleaded guilty. Paul C. Cook, who was 51, and Margaret Ruffin Cook, who was 56, were Joshua's adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, They adopted him in 1991. After he shot them, he called the police and his father, who was at the time on the phone with his adoptive sister, Mm -hmm. he took the phone and she was still on the line. Like she, she heard all of this too. Oh my God. So she was like, Joshua, like, where's dad? Like, put dad back on the phone. And he's like, I have to call someone. So he hung up the phone and he called the police. And 
he was just like, I just shot both my parents. Oh my God. Right after it happened. It's a fucking nightmare. Yes. Cook's attorneys attracted attention by filing a motion saying their client may not have known the difference between right and wrong because he, quote, harbored a bona fide belief that he was living in the virtual reality of the Matrix. Oh no. Yes, the oh, 1999 no. movie. So they, they actually filed that oh as my part God. of the defense. Yes. Quote, they said. There will be elements of the Matrix theory in the sentencing hearing regarding the influence of violent films and violent video games as one of the factors in the murders. There's still people that are like, the Matrix is glitching. Sometimes I, that's one of the rabbit holes I go down. I know. I'm like, let me see your Matrix glitch. I believe you. I don't care. (laughs) Literally. That doesn't make me homicidal. That's fucking insane to use it as a defense. I know. And what they, the they filed this like, and when asked to elaborate, his attorney declined. She was like, no. Okay, no, you can't do that. Yeah. You gotta elaborate. But they're like, the science fiction movies and the violent video games are the reason why he can't tell right from wrong. He was 19. Mm-hmm. He's an adult. It doesn't actually doesn't matter what age. That's insane. Yes. That is an insane defense. Right. For an insane crime. Exactly. So his attorney also said the sentencing hearing may also include evidence of quote possible abuse by foster parents prior to being adopted by the cooks. Okay. Um, as well as emotional and physical abuse by the cooks. So oh, there's that layer to it. So case goes evidence is presented. Um, ultimately he pleaded guilty to the use of a firearm in a felony which is an automatic nine years, and then to the first two-degree murder charges. So meditated. Yeah. Right, because it's first degree. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is 28 to 50 years for each count, which could run consecutively or concurrently, which I didn't realize when you do more than one person, they can decide to have you serve it at the same time or run right after the other, which is, I feel like it should never be at the same time. Like you should have to do lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes over again um so he's still in jail to this day but when he pleaded guilty was he like did he say anything about the song like what i don't so that's that's my point so here's where i'm like circling back like that just that small detail that that song was being played in his earphones yeah uh in addition to his influence from the matrix and the violent video games all those even the movie because now he's known as the matrix killer for the rest of time Mm -hmm. like the Matrix franchise, Drowning Pool, and I couldn't find the video games that they were referencing, but like all those received backlash yeah. for his actions. I tried finding the um, actual quoted response from the band. I couldn't find the quote, but it was noted that they had to give like a public response to this, just being like, yeah. not our thing, distance ourselves from like what happened, like that's not what it's about. Right. But again, like even just this big one is still linked to the band so severely on media. Wow. Even though it was such a tiny, tiny detail that it wasn't even like he was ever admitting that the song was making him do anything. It just was playing. Like he was just listening to it and it still got that extreme response. That's nuts. Yeah. Here is the bigger one. On January 8th of 2011, Jared Lee Lautner carried out a mass shooting in Tucson, Arizona killing six and injuring 14 people before the shooting and unrelated to the shooting, but used as evidence for the lead up to the incident. He posted a YouTube video calling college illegal under the constitution and saying that his college was quote, the biggest scam in America. He went to Pima community college in Arizona, but he used the body song as background music in the video. Okay. 
So Mm. he would be suspended from his college because of this video issue, as well as because of his extremely disruptive and disassociative behavior around campus, Mm -hmm. noted by staff, his teachers, and his friends. However, when in a meeting later to talk about coming back to the campus, his parents even joined, he decided to withdraw from the campus and classes altogether. He was supposed to like submit a mental health evaluation to be readmitted, but he never did. And then he completely left the college. Okay. So he went from like just withdrawing the courses to dropping out. Okay. Of college. So some events leading up to the shooting that I think are important to note. Lautner had a severe behavioral change after he dropped out of high school in 2006 at the age of 18. Not much evidence is shown to represent what he was like before this shift, like in his childhood. It just kind of starts at he dropped out of high school and something happened oh so they don't know like what okay kind of okay it's yeah like or like, not publicly known not I guess publicly I known say. they just like everything that's like on record is like after the quote-unquote shift so like the beginning of the downfall as you would was that because he was like a he was a minor or kind of um and there was also some like in some articles it said that his family was very quiet very reserved i see okay so maybe um, just he's an only a... child gotcha so he's got a, just a small family right with his parents. Some of his, like, friends from high school and college come into, like, I quoted them here. So there's people that are, like, talking about it and just being, like, I was very surprised that he did this. Like, he oh, did not okay. seem like this. But they also saw a change in him. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So drops out of high school. He was fired from his Quiznos job because of his behavioral change and was asked to stop volunteering at the animal shelter because he did not listen to the rules when it came to interacting and walking the dogs, which I thought was very creepy. Yeah. Because just like animals are so like if you hurt or abuse an animal, that is just like a different type of evil, you know? Super creepy. Got fired from a volunteering job. Super weird and creepy. I hate that a lot. So it was said by his former friend, Tong Shan, that after his high school girlfriend broke up with him, he started using and abusing drugs and alcohol, including psychedelics and hallucinogens. But he stopped using everything altogether in 2008 and tried to join the army, but was denied and deemed unqualified. Because he admitted and talked a lot about using drugs in uh, his admittance interviews. So the they're like, no, you can't join. Yeah. Because they're very strict about drug abuse and usage, even the legal stuff. In 2010, he was suspended from the college that he decided to go to, which is just like four years after he graduated high school. Wait, so he graduated or he or, dropped sorry, out? dropped out. Okay. Four years like, after he dropped out. Sorry. He was in college and then he got suspended. Like I said previously, dropped out of college. Mm-hmm. It was also during 2010 that he became like politically outspoken on behalf of his growing dislike of the Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. I think I actually know exactly what you're talking about right now. Yes. Okay. So all coming together. I know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also recounted by friends and other people that knew him via social media. He was very active on MySpace. He was always like said to be like extreme in his political stances, but not very like, I'm going to type it all out on MySpace right now. I'm going to take it up with a YouTube video, as I talked about earlier. So this YouTube w- video wasn't necessarily a manifesto, I guess. No, it was just, it was, it just was kind, kind of, of just like him. a rant. Yes. But like a scary one. Yes. Okay. Very incel Okay. Um, I did try to find this video. 
I think it's not on the it's internet It's removed anymore, from yeah. the internet. He repeatedly referred to Giffords as fake. This belief intensified after he attended her August 25th, 2007 event when she did not, in his view, sufficiently answer his question, quote, what is government if words have no meaning? How, how does one answer that question? Thank you. So Lautner kept Gifford's um, form letter, which thanked him for attending the 2007 event, in the same box as an envelope, which was sprawled with phrases like, die, bitch, I'm assuming, and assassination plans have been made. So they found that he had kept all this stuff in like a box with other really scary looking things. Yeah. He purchased a Glock pistol in November of 2010 at a sportsman warehouse. And on the morning of the shooting and around two months later, he bought the ammunition for the gun at a Walmart. Why can you get guns and ammunition at Walmart? I was literally having this talk with Sophie the other day. I don't like how you can get your cereal and a gun from the same place. What? Yeah, that seems weird. That seems What? No one no one thought about that. No. So the day before, he also left a voicemail for his friend saying, quote, Hey man, it's Jared. Me and you had good times. Peace out later. Um Yeah, haunting. And in a MySpace post, the morning of the shooting at 4.12 a.m., he wrote, quote, Goodbye, friends. Please don't be mad at me. The literacy rate is below 5%. I haven't talked to one person who is literate. I want to make it out alive. The longest war in history of the United States. Goodbye. I'm saddened with the current currency and job employment. I had a bully at school. Thank you. P.S. Plead the fifth. Oh, yeah. What the Um, fuck? So it's also noted that in the months leading up to the shooting, Lautner's parents became increasingly alarmed at their son's behavior. I mean, yeah. At one point, they resorted to disabling his car every night in order to keep him at home. Wow. Um, On one occasion, his father confiscated his shotgun and both parents urged him to get help. So before buying this Glock, apparently he had access to another gun as well. I was going to say, you're scared enough of whatever your son is feeling or going through or mm-hmm. maybe possibly going to do that you're literally disabling his car manually yeah. every single night, but you're going to have a gun in your house? Mm-hmm. Like they confiscated it. That doesn't make sense get at all. Get rid of it. I Like he's 19? Yeah. Bro, if I, if I don't care what age you are. If you're living under my roof... like uh, we can get in (laughs) so those are all the events leading up to the unfortunate um incident at hand so on january 8th he arrived at a safeway supermarket center where giffords was hosting a constituents meeting he opened fire on giffords from close range hitting her as well as many other bystanders killing six and injuring 14 giffords survived a gunshot to the head i remember this happening and i remember people being like she's gonna pull through and just that is absolutely insane insane that anyone can survive like that yes oh my god oh there are no words (laughs) i have no words he was detained by people on the scene so the 
bystanders Mm -hmm. until the police got there. And then when they did arrest him, he was like, I plead the fifth. Doesn't matter. Don't fucking care, bro. Don't matter. Don't matter. I don't want to hear what you got to say. Exactly. So his trial was actually kind of crazy. There was a lot of back and forth as in Arizona, you cannot plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but rather guilty, but insane. So you can't be exempt from guilt despite being insane, which is interesting. Okay. This was a state case originally and then got moved to the federal court. Right, right. Because of that weird. Oh, that was the reason? One of them. Okay. So initially he was treated with the same conditions as a member in maximum security prison because he had shot United States representative and carried out an act of terrorism, basically. Meaning he had like the 23 hours in a small room and then Mm -hmm. a one hour out day routine. This was only a problem to his defense team because he had not been to trial one and been convicted guilty before receiving this punishment. So his defense was pissed off, but then also it's a special case because terrorism. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But they really tried arguing for better conditions for him and everyone was just like, you're wasting your breath. So the official court case was Jared Lee Lautner versus the United States. So the United States defense team was bringing on 19 accounts of murder or attempted murder on behalf of all the victims and then raised it to 49 total, meaning one for every person at the event whose life was at risk. Oh, wow. He denied pleading guilty to all 49 accounts. So he was like, I'm not guilty. That's the original defense. After two medical evaluations in May of 2011, so a few months later, The judge declared that he was incompetent to stand trial as he was diagnosed with depression and schizophrenia and was sent to a psychiatric rehabilitation facility in Missouri. The court proceedings would be suspended um, so he can receive treatment. Mm -hmm. Then on September 28th of 2011, later that year, he was reevaluated and the judge deemed him now competent after receiving treatment, which seems really short turnaround from May to september of the same year for you to go from completely incompetent to being competent yeah and just if you're schizophrenic yeah yeah however in the first hearing since being deemed back competent he had an outburst in court when his lawyer informed him that gifford survived up to this point he had thought he had killed her so he had this huge outburst like completely went crazy he didn't know until in the courtroom yeah oh my god No one had told him. I mean... And so he reacted in the way that he reacted, and the judge deemed him incompetent to stand trial again because of the incident. So on June 26th of 2011, Judge Burns ruled that prison doctors could forcibly medicate Lochner with antipsychotic drugs in order to treat him to restore him to competency for trial. But on July 12th, one month later, a three-judge federal appeals panel from the Ninth Circuit ruled that Lautner could refuse antipsychotic medication since he is, quote, not been convicted of a crime, is presumably innocent, and therefore entitled to greater constitutional protections than a convicted inmate. However... The ruling stated that it, quote, does not preclude prison authorities from taking other measures to maintain the safety of prison personnel, other inmates, and Lautner himself, including force administration of tranquilizers. They were like, he is a danger to everyone around him. Yeah. Which is why he has to be medicated. Otherwise, 
he could refuse. But this is someone that they just deemed incompetent to stand trial, therefore incompetent to make his own choices. So he's going to be medicated. Yeah. But a lot of people were like, you can't do that to him. He's not... Because he he hasn't been proven guilty. Yeah, you can't keep on treating him like an inmate because he hasn't been proven guilty. But this is someone that has already carried out an act of terrorism. Yeah. And has been deemed unstable. Right. Severely unstable. Severely unstable, but somehow they needed him to still stand trial. I know. Okay. His defense... Tried to appeal and refused his treatment, but it was denied by the higher courts. And after being on this medication nearly a year later, in June of 2012 now, Lautner was again deemed fit to stand trial. His psychiatrist that was a witness during the case stated that, quote, he was properly diagnosed with depression and schizophrenia. And after having been on the medication for a year, he was finally expressing remorse and has become a changed individual. So his defense offered up a plea deal in which he would plead guilty to the reduced 19 charges, so from 49 to 19, of murder slash attempted murder in exchange for the death penalty to be removed off the table. And in exchange, life in prison without the possibility of parole. So that was like the sentence he was doing a plea deal for. Yeah, yeah. So by pleading guilty um, in the deal, he also waived his right to future appeals. So he was sentenced guilty and to serve seven life sentences consecutively, plus 140 years without the possibility of parole. He is serving his time right now in a federal medical center in Missouri where he receives treatment during his sentence. Wow. So again, we see how little of this is actually based on the body song, right? Remember why we're here? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I literally forgot. Yeah, so it wasn't even at the shooting, it was just this slightly disturbing video that he made about college being a joke. Ugh. Okay. okay. I know. And so the band received a lot of backlash because mass shooting happened. Congresswoman got shot in the head. And they're like, hey, this is that weirdo that posted that videos with the bodies in the background. Aw, oh, man, metal music is one of the reasons why he must have gone so crazy and as acting this way as being so angsty with guns and violence, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that people were like, the lyrics allude to the violent things that went down. Oh, my God. Yes. Bodies hit the floor and they're like, there was a mass shooting. The internet, the media had a field day, unfortunately. I'm sure they did. Um, So the ban issued a statement and I was actually able to find this statement. In order to help distance themselves from the mass shooting, they said, quote, We are devastated this weekend to learn of the tragic events that occurred in Arizona and that our music has been misinterpreted. Bodies was written about the brotherhood of the mosh pit and was never about violence. We support those who do what they do to keep America safe. Our hearts go out to the victims and their families of this terrible tragedy. Pretty standard statement, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. But it's like as an artist... I mean, what else, what else can they do? They're like, about, they, they're yeah. already receiving, imagine being an artist receiving backlash from 9-11 that you're not even associated with. And then your music gets linked to something that catastrophic. Yeah. And then you have murder after mass shooting after Guantanamo Bay noise torture. That is so, this is nuts. What? What is this? This is fucking nuts. Literally. So, unfortunately, the lead singer... Uh, Dave Williams, died in 2002 from a cardiovascular condition. Um, so, And that was a little over a year after the song was released. So he didn't even live to see these other terrible things happen. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, he died oh so soon after that first one. Wow. And the group, I unfortunately did not get the name of who replaced him, but they've had other singers replaced since. Yeah. But the original, like, this sing, like, Sinner album. Yeah. Probably their biggest album. Right. And most um, iconic was Dave, and he was only around for that one album. Oh, my God. So... Stevie says, quote, I think that is the legacy of bodies. Even now, whenever someone needs a shot of adrenaline and to psych somebody up, that is the go-to song over everything else. It's a shot in the arm that will get you pumped up. So I guess the biggest legacy of this song is that it remains a staple to metal life and culture. And despite Mm -hmm. these terrible instances where people were inspired to carry out unspeakable things on behalf of what the media was telling them to do, there are more people than not, I think, that can separate the music from doing terrible things like this. Yeah. Um, and be quote the helping hand in the mosh pit of life there's this there's i've seen like a lot of um i did a little bit of like mosh pit research love it and you know it's supposed to be thrashy and violent and kind of rough yeah but more often than not i would see things it's like if someone falls down you help them back up yeah you don't trample them right but if you're on your feet anything's game but as soon as you drop someone's gonna be there yeah which you do you. They're not killing anyone. They're not trying to kill anyone. They're just trying to be kind of crazy. I was saying earlier, like, (laughs) it seems so fun. It also, like, that probably feels good to just kind of thrash your body around a lot and to listen to your favorite tunes and have everyone And I mean, it's an experience. Those shows, like, it's the live shows. It's part of the, yeah. Yeah, like, you go there to have a good time, to be active, to get crazy, and everyone is there for the same reason. Yeah, totally. So you're in a group of people with the same vibe, the same goals, and you're here to help each other make a good thing. And there was a quote by Dave Williams that I came across and it said you go to a rock show like everyone's there to have a good time so it's like you got to make sure everyone has a good time yeah so this is the culture like when you listen to the song and I listen to the song and it's like I mean we all know it it's crazy it's intense it does sound violent but again that's not why it was written and for all of us that like I was born in 98 Mm -hmm. so my actual like consciousness being aware you know, the song didn't have too much time in the world before it was misinterpreted, unfortunately. Right, right. Literally, it still that, has four that, months. It has that like longevity, though. I feel like yeah. it's still noted as oh, one absolutely, of those, yeah. absolutely. But I, I think it's important for people to understand yeah. why they think the way they do and just kind of be aware of how media portrays art. Yeah, I also think that with metal music as a whole, as like a genre, mm-hmm. kind of in the sa- in a similar vein to like how rock and roll was pretty like s- stigmatized, yeah. like all throughout it's like right. morphing into different subgenres. But like metal gets this like, I think because of like the harshness of the genre itself mm-hmm. that just come kind of comes with the territory, mm-hmm. people are like, that's inherently violent and bad. Right. Which I don't agree with, and right. I know that that we've talked about metal artists before. Like some mm-hmm. of their songs are a little like they can be violent in like sonically. In, yeah, no, not even that. Just like uh, there are some obviously like metal bands that write some tunes that are pretty dark and mm-hmm. twisted, like the right. like lyrically. Mm-hmm. I guess I should say. Right. Um, I don't think that's like a, as a whole. People, no, I some of like the I think best. it's just like a harsh. 
I, harsh is not the right word. Right. That's kind of like the only word that's coming to mind, though. It's kind of a, it's supposed to be jarring. It's supposed right. to make you kind of like, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's making you feel amped up, but it's mm-hmm. not supposed to, it's not. Supposed to incite violence. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I don't, I, I think of every, this would be very stereotypical right now, but I think <laughs> of every guy that I met with like an Iron Maiden t-shirt on. Who is so shy. They're always nice. Yeah. They're nice. And they're like, this is the music I listen to. And you're like, really? It's fun. You're always very surprised. Oh, I'm not surprised. Usually they, I'm like, I They're wearing the yeah. shirt and listening to it at the same time. <laughs> um, no, but I, yeah, no, I think like, or even with like the moshing, I mm-hmm. feel like there are obviously metal fans that don't like to mosh. And I think that the other people at it. concerts like respect that. I think that's just like, there's like a camaraderie, especially because it is like a stigmatized genre mm-hmm. and in itself, it's almost kind of in like a punk way, you True. know, kind of thing where it's like, we're all in this together. We all yeah. like this like kind of weird thing. Yeah. Again, <laughs> metal is not the, the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, isn't that crazy? That's absolutely insane. Tr- truly tragic not only yeah and now i I just want to like blast this song and just like thrash and parkour off the walls and in rejection of all this stupid shit that went down i'm scared yeah me always hated that but i you did a good job sorry that (laughs) was like that was crazy i know that was crazy but yeah in light of recent events i always just think it's crazy when songs get banned from being played see it was unofficially banned everyone just kind of came to the consensus yeah because it's not like oh you're gonna get arrested if you as a dj play this song but it's like almost like yeah everyone was just like ooh, not don't play that yeah like bad taste i think that's super weird i know there are other songs that that has happened into but i feel like even more i think in the 2000s i'm like what do you mean literally they just they got so much radio play and mtv was all over it like their stuff was popular so everyone knew it and then everyone was like oh and that was their first album that was their first single which is crazy yeah fuck (sighs) annoying that's nuts yeah crazy wow though, right? good job thanks sophie for the wreck as i said before i've been a little sleep deprived so i apologize in advance if this timeline doesn't make sense but i think it does okay i think it's fine yeah i don't know what you're talking about this week yes okay <laughs> yes you're right i feel like you've possibly i feel like you've heard of this man so today i am going to be telling you about the life and death of joe meek I like that face you're making. My it means puzzling I get to face. surprise you. So Joe Meek actually helped shape the sound of pop music in the 60s and for decades to come. He pioneered a lot of techniques that are now standard use in the music industry, Fair. in the recording industry. A short list being overdubbing, oh. spring reverb, compression, sound separation, close miking. He also experimented a lot with tape loops, sampling, and handcrafted electronics. So he really paved the way for not only just the industry standard recording things, but also generations of like hip hop and electronic music artists. Literally, how have I not heard of this man? I feel like I have because everything that you're listing, I have studied the history of at one point. Yeah. That's really impressive. It's pretty nuts. Damn. Oh, no. So let me tell you about... Meek. Joe Meek was born Robert George Meek on April 5th, 1929 in England in Gloucestershire. I think it wasn't necessarily there, but like kind of, anyway, 
They, he was born there in England to a family of farmers, and he was the youngest of three boys. You're he, just bringing it back to all my topics of today. Hmm? Farmer needs a wife. Farmer needs a wife. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even connect that when you were talking about it earlier. You're the most perfect story. Wait, I love that. Okay. <laughs> so he was said to be sensitive as a child. He did have a bit of a temper. I read in some of the sources that his father was... He had a violent streak, okay. and that was a he, was that he exasperated. Was he a generation of alcoholics? I think he was a veteran that had gotcha. The, yeah. What year is this? He was born in 1929, so I'm referring to his early childhood yeah, now. So well, it's like it's, World War One. Yeah, I was about to say World War One yeah. because they're in England. Yeah. Damn. Okay. So um, I'm not exactly sure when he came out or when it was public, but he's also gay. That's important to the story. Okay. Um, although at the time during his life, it was still illegal mm-hmm. to be gay, especially in the Europe. UK. Yeah. It's pretty glossed over, honestly, in like half of the resources that I looked at. It was kind of just like, oh, yeah, by the way. But obviously that had a very large effect on his well-being Absolutely. and just like the way that you grow up. Not unlike many other gay people, not only at the time, but currently just throughout the years. Yeah, exactly. It was said from an early age that he was different from his brothers and he tried to distinguish himself from his brothers. Instead of being outdoorsy, you know, like the farmer Mm -hmm. type, he preferred the indoors and he was also interested in the performing arts. He spent as much time as he could learning about how electronics work and soon began experimenting on his own. Mm -hmm. He taught himself how to build circuits and radios in his family's garden shed. Wow. Uh, He also was thought to have constructed the first working TV in the Gloucestershire region. That's impressive. But I don't know if that's actually confirmed. It did come up in um, most of my sources, though. That's still kind of crazy. Yeah. So little guy in his little little garden shed. In the little garden shed. Um, At 18, he joined the Royal Air Force as a radar technician, which obviously brought him further into his fascination with technology and expanding into an interest in outer space as well. In 53, so like early 20s, -hmm. his early 20s, I mean, he worked for Midland's Electricity Board and obtained a disc cutter and produced his first record. Hooray. He then left the electricity board to work as an audio engineer. He was just like, yep, this is my thing now. He worked for an independent radio station company that made programs for Radio Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Luxembourg? Luxembourg. Far Out Magazine UK said, quote, It's in the early days of his production career that the Edison-like image of his childhood returned baffling jazz musicians in bids to compress sounds clashing with co-producers over what they saw as futile fussing in the search of an unachievable perfection. If the mad scientist of sound was going to have it his way, he'd have to create his own sonic highway. That's awesome. Yeah, I liked that quote Life a is a sonic highway. I wanna hear it all night No. Bye. <laughs> so, yeah. He, I'm just here to lighten the mood, baby. <laughs> I know. Uh, he was said to be co- very meticulous. And I think just even his very sparse 
information about his upbringing. Like, what's his favorite thing to do to put take things apart and put things back together again? We all know that person, And too. I think he, that was, like, his view for music as well. Okay. I, saw, I like it. Yeah. I saw, he's he's also, like, not a musician. No, he's not. He's He's very much on the production side which is refreshing like i've seen people call him like literally go as far to be like he was tone deaf like he was not like he didn't know instruments all this stuff to sing a melody yeah he won't so his breakthrough in developing his own production style came in the production of humphrey littleton's 1956 single bad penny blues Mm. so on this record Against the wishes of Littleton, Meek modified the sound of the piano and drums using way more than the standard amount of compression. It was like a jazz single, too. Mm, yeah, I see one a little bit more dynamic and less yeah, usually, solidarity. Especially around this time, too, I think. If I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of like the jazz recordings would be like the whole band with mics kind of further away and you would get like the room sound. Yeah, it was like a live performance rather than like an in-studio performance, if that makes sense. So there was like a lot of like natural room, like reverb and echo. So he's like, no, I want it snappy. Yeah. This record soon became a top 10 hit in the UK. Goes to show. Yeah. In that same year, he worked on Anne Shelton's song, Lay Down Your Arms. He used simple but effective sound effects in the production, such as mimicking the sound of marching by rhythmically shaking a box of gravel. So he started experiencing with what what I understand is like Foley. Yeah, Foley. Right? Yeah. Wow. Can you explain, so can you explain you... what Foley is? Because I yes. literally wrote it down here. Like I need to talk to Clarice about this because I absolutely I have actually considered maybe going into this as something that could be fun for mm-hmm. my mental health and also be a part of the industry. But for movies to this day, the special effects sounds that are like human made sounds. So like every time someone clinks a glass, like walks on the floor, opens a door, floorboard creaks, bangs, stuff that happens. Not like, not, not like, like spe- explosions. Yeah. Not, not like, like explosions or like Godzilla yeah. sounds. It's like, the- but like all the walking that you hear has to be re-recorded. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be re-recorded for sound because when you're on site, you're not recording anything other than the picture, really. So fully, like, you have these people who will watch the film, and they sit in a studio by themselves, and they have all these different, like, things around them. And most of the things that we think make a sound aren't actually what makes them. Yeah, I think that's so fun. Which I love. Yeah. Um, and you can follow these people on Instagram. There's so many different, um, like, Foley artists. My point. If you want point it. in case. If you want to, like, have, like, a satisfying video after this really depressing episode... Go you, look you, for a Foley video. Yeah, because I th- I just recently watched one with The uh, the Quiet Place. Oh, the, great one. There's, like, a really fun video of the person who does the Foley... Mm-hmm. Or did the Foley for that first one, showing the different things mm-hmm. that they use to make yes. the sounds and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It's and super I, fun. And I know that... Like, you have to get really creative. Like You do. One of the sounds, I think, for, like, the scary monster thing mm-hmm. is, like, a piece of celery being, like, kind of twisted and crunched People and use that for, like, bone breaking. Yeah. Love it. It's a I su- would love to be a Foley artist because I would just go crazy in that room all by myself, like, tromping up and down, going... Chah, 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 chah. It's super interesting. I didn't really have, I didn't see a lot in my sources, anyone making that connection, but I think as you'll probably see in some of the later information that I say, I think a lot of Meek's 
experimental style and like really kind of what made his sound unique is that he used these really creative things to add these different layers to the songs like love it yeah it's super fun it's just not a musician but i have some gravel although his then seen as odd techniques Mm -hmm. of adding layers to his mixes were successful they didn't really mesh well with the demands of the industry standard Boo. studios at the time, Boo. you know. And as well as his personality not really meshing well with other producers as well. Um, so he's just like very introverted. He doesn't seem like he'd be cocky at all, but I could be very off about that. I just get little little kid in garden house vibes. I read in an article that he, it seemed he almost developed this like complex at a very early age because he was so like smart kid he was kind no he was like kind of ostracized and i'm sure he like felt ostracized Mm -hmm. because of his sexuality and he had this like temper and this bad father and i actually read somewhere that his mom used to like she really wanted a daughter so she she dressed him up as a girl for the first four Mm -hmm. years of his life yeah it was traumatizing so i think he just like developed this like kind of really harsh almost like seemingly manic complex Mm -hmm. that i especially like with these techniques that weren't Mm -hmm. really like what the hell dude everyone was just kind of like enough and i've seen people make like connections personality wise to um phil specter and, you know, like, he, like, got bullied, like, as a kid. Right. Like, people called him, like, a sissy or whatever. Mm. And, like, things yeah. things like that, you know, where yeah. it's just kind of, like, it, I'm it's sure. Layered. Yeah. It's, yeah. So anyway. I'm sure he wasn't the easiest person to be around. But, hey, anyways. So he soon left his job at this uh, production company to pursue his career independently. At this time, he also worked as a songwriter under a pseudonym Robert Duke. Mm-hmm. And in 1958, his composition named Put a Ring on My Finger was recorded by Les Paul and Mary Ford, mm-hmm. earning the number 32 spot on the U.S. charts. Wow. Throughout 59, he worked on his project called I Hear a New World, an Outer Space Music Fantasy. And this was a mix of lively pop and experimental sounds with the kind of overall vision of the whole work being a trip to the moon, like being in space kind of thing. Oh, I love that. The production of this was really kind of him honing in his techniques, letting his creativity develop, his love for the kind of like sci-fi, more dark things too, even that also kind of developed further from this as well he was obsessed with the occult sci-fi things like that really dark shit too i also read that the album was intended as like a test recording for stereo equipment stores i don't really know what that like means though you know how when you go to like target and there's like something playing on the tvs oh okay yeah yeah maybe it was like something for like the uh that's kind of how i took it too i just wasn't really sure like yeah i don't know in january of 1960 meek and a man named william barrington Koo founded triumph records together 
Okay. At the time, William was working under Major Wilfred Alonzo Banks at, I'm just going to call him the Major, at Saga Records. Okay. And the Major was actually the one who provided funding for their new label. So he was kind of like the financer. I believe he was like a banker of some sort. I Hear a New World officially released under this record company in that same March of that year. Although it wasn't the whole thing. It was only kind of like a, basically like an EP's worth of music. It's so like three so, or five songs. Yeah, it was like short. Um, only 99 copies were circulated, though the full-length album remained unheard for about three decades. Several of its songs wow. were repurposed and renamed for the Outlaws 1961 album Dream of the West. In general, the label was pretty successful from the get-go, but because they were independent, the small record pressing plants that they relied on were unable to meet the demand. Due to the business practices and also Meek's temperament and kind of like being out there, mm-hmm. Meek left Triumph in June of that same year okay. and the label later collapsed. But he, they did see some success. I'm sorry I'm not naming all the songs that they did a lot of, they released a lot of music. Okay. Like him himself and with other people he produced mm-hmm an insane amount of music and i just thought there were too many names no and then as soon as he left it died and it was it was only like from january to june wow it was it was pretty and they did a lot during that time yeah they did but he just in general his career he did a lot so i was just like that's a lot meek then set his focus on his own production Mm -hmm. company which was known as rgm sound and it was later rebranded as meeksville sound Meeksville. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, right? Uh, He ran his business out of a three-story unit apartment on 304 Holloway Road in Islington in England. Okay. So, yeah, there was, like, a three-story unit above basically, like, a commercial business. I think it was, like, a leather store of some sort. Um, And this was where he lived, and he had... A studio, not just like in one room, but it was like his whole apartment. There were just like mics and weird things kind of like everywhere. What is it up with musicians like sleeping amongst their recording space? Clarice, I'm on your bed with a microphone in my Shut head. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. It's so funny to me because I, I have been over to these places where you get there and it's like, wow, this is such a nice studio. Look at all yeah. this equipment, this nice rug. And then I snap out of it. And I'm like, wait, I'm at your house. Yeah. I was like, where do you sleep? And then all of a sudden they <laughs> point to like a little mat in the corner. Yeah, that's real. Like a, like a straw mat and like a little blanket. They're like, <laughs> I sleep right there. They have this like, like thousands of thousands of dollars of nice equipment and fancy like mood lights. Yeah. And I'm like, where is your bed? Where are your clothes? Where's where the kitchen? Oh my God. Where is the bed? Where is it? I need to know. (laughs) At least my bed is very distinguishable upon entering my space. So in this apartment slash home studio, he developed industry changing techniques, like I said before, such as overdubbing, recording instruments individually and miking close to the instrument. Yeah. So instead of just kind of getting the far away, everyone in the band performing kind Mm -hmm. of thing, he did like, okay, guitar now. Okay, vocals now. Okay, I want you to do the the guitar again. Okay, like do the drums now kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And at this time, it was not standard to do that at all. Just like the general sound of his recordings were 
very different from yeah. what was popular or just what was being recorded by not only big labels, but just even like independent labels as well. Right. So he also spent this time more freely exploring his sound with how he used compression, echo, and reverb levels mm-hmm. that had been described as outlandish at the time. <laughs> so he, you know, not only experimented with that, but he also experimented with different and unusual sound sources. For example, machine hums, boot stomps, like just general traffic, like in the hallway of his apartment, like on the street, kind of like literally recorded whatever he could find and tried to put it in something, which I think a lot of people actually do now. I knew someone who carried around like a recorder and was like, I need to record this sound so I can sample it later. I I use that a lot in my films in college. It's fun. Little Tascam recorder. And I went to the the Charles a few times Mm -hmm. and I listened to the birds and the water and I was like, this will make me feel something. It's great. So he was like dead set on like, I'm, this is my thing. I'm, he's very meticulous. His first hit in this independent setup was in 1961. It was John Layton's Johnny Remember Me. And that was written by Jeff Goddard. uh, And it reached number one on the UK charts. The song was, it was called a death ditty. Have you ever heard that term before? I've never heard that term before. But a death ditty? Yeah, I think there's like a few other names for this like song type, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, but basically it's just like a teenage tragedy song. It's like a melodramatic ballad. Okay. Um, and I guess it was that kind of style of ballad was popular around this time. But this one was noted as being like the one that kind of encapsulated like the idea of these like death ditties. Um, okay. You, what did you call it? You called it a teenage. It's called death like a di- teenage, teenage tragedy ballad or something like that. There's like a lot of like tragedy ballad, dude. A teenage tragedy song is a style of ballad in popular music that peaked its popularity in the late 50s and early 60s. They're also known as tearjerkers, death discs, or splatter platters. Um, basically they're often lamenting teenage death scenarios in a very melodramatic fashion. And these songs were sung from the viewpoint of the dead person's like sweetheart. Oh my God. And then there's like a list of songs here. I don't need to list all the songs, but like this was like a popular thing for a moment. Um, it did fade away in like 65, mostly because everything kind of got drowned out by like the British invasion. But, you know, this song in particular was kind of like the big one of this era, very short era of like okay. very insanely tragic songs. Jesus. So um, this song in particular recounted a young man being haunted by his dead lover. It was distinguished in particular by its eerie, echoing sound and ghostly, foreboding female background vocals. And these background vocals were not described so much as singing. They're like more like wailing almost from afar. Oh my god, that is so Very scary. creepy sounding. Oh, I hate this. Um, Wait, I'll, can we play this one? I like really want to hear it. Yeah, right now? Sure. Okay. Along with other death ditties, whatever you want to call them, teenage tragedy songs mm-hmm. um, that were popular at the time, the BBC like banned a lot of these songs from being played on radios. Ever so, again? I don't know like if ever again, but just like at the time they were just like, dude, enough. They were like, we're not playing this. This is crazy. Why are you doing this? Yeah. 
okay, like, let me pull up this song for you. I didn't even have it up. I'm sorry. That's just like, no, it's you okay. Just it's a crazy made yeah. me that gave me like chills. Like, I do not like the way that sounds. When the mists are rising and the rain is falling and the wind is blowing cold across the moor. I hear the voice of my darling, the girl I love and lost a year ago. Well, it's hard to believe I know. Yeah, if I hear that anymore, I'm going to get nightmares. Yeah. That's okay. You know creepy. what that kind of like reminds me of? What? The first time I learned the meaning behind that Coco Cabana song. At what? the Coca Coca Cabana. What do you mean the meaning do, do, behind do, do. it? Like I used to just sing that song, and then I was like, learning. "Is there like a crazy meaning behind it?" No, it's just like you know the story that happens. No, I don't listen. To the it's like the guy comes in is like shot. Oh. The co- it's like oh yeah, oh yeah. I I I remember learning that song, and mm-hmm. I in the car with my mom, I got emotionally upset, and I was like, "Please turn this off." Like I yeah. do not like the song. It like scares me. Yeah, it's pretty upsetting. I was like crying in the car on the way to Costco. <laughs> God. I was like, it's it's two p.m. right now. I can't do this, mom. Yeah, that's that's what I just got from that. Same vibes. Oh God, Alyssa, I hated that so. I'm sorry. Much. sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh God, I hated. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Just that is so creepy. I wasn't even gonna play it for you, but. <sighs> I, felt, I just needed to know. I needed to know. I felt like that one, not only because it was his first like hit independently with this home setup, but it was also like a good indicator of kind of like his interests at the time where it was kind of like, let's get a little darker here, yeah. you know? But, I, you know, sonically, just... though, the separation and the close miking and the overdubbing, you can hear it. Yeah, it doesn't sound so crazy now because all like all of our music is recorded kind right. in that and way. Why, yeah, and like it's like the standard, it, but it if, sounds like our music now, right, which right. is like the techniques that we use. So. Exactly. And when when was that song written? The year? The it was released in sixty one. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So um, Layton and Meek actually had another top ten hit that October um, called Wild Wind. Mike Berry and the Outlaws tribute to Buddy Holly. That one sang the praises of Meek's favorite artist, Buddy Holly, (laughs) and uh, reached number 24. And the Outlaws, I believe, were just, they worked with Joe Meek like as his session band, if I am not mistaken. But yeah, that also got some success. So he continued to grow and have more hits. I'm not going to name all of them. I'm sorry. You can go look it up yourself. (laughs) But in 62, Meek achieved his arguably biggest success with the song Telstar that was recorded by the Tornadoes. Mm, And this song was a love letter to the space age. And it really showcased his unique soundscapes that he could create. For example, he, (laughs) this is kind of funny. He had this like rumbling blast off sound effect and allegedly it came from a reversed recording of a flushing toilet. Toilet gate. <laughs> Shut up. Enough. I'm sorry. I'm Try sorry. again. Amazing. Actually, I kind of want to like record and go do that right now. You want to try it? <laughs> I do. I do. That's a great idea. Yeah. Not only did Telstar top the UK singles chart, it became the first British song to top the Billboard Hot 100 in the US. Wow. I think. I only found that in one source, but okay. hey, sure. 
You can fact check me. It sold 5 million copies in its first year oh. of the release, which is nuts. Yeah, for back then. Especially because he was independent as well. Yeah. Let's just remember that. Damn. I might need your help with this name. It's very French. <gasps> All right. I cannot. I'm not oui, even. Oui. I'm honestly not even going to try to pronounce it. But if you want, you can pronounce it. Okay. So, however, the French composer Jean Ledru. Ledru. He claimed that the song's melody came from his own work, and he sued Meek for plagiarism. Oh, and God. Is this the first copyright case of history? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> no. The name of the song... Here, you look at the name of the song. Oh, it was also in French. Yeah, the name of him wasn't even the name I was worried about. Still got it wrong. The Austrian March. Uh, Le Marche de Austerlitz. Okay. So that's Austria, and March is the walk. So, like, the... Austrian walk or like walk of Austria. Okay. Thanks, French. Duolingo. Wow. Come on, Duolingo. Sponsor us. How would that work? I don't know. <laughs> I can give a Duolingo ad. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> Maybe in French. So because of this lawsuit, Meek actually never saw any of the Telstar royalties while he was alive. No. Um, the suit was resolved in his favor in 1967, which was three months after his death, but I'll get into that in a moment. Okay. I'm still in the early 60s, but that's pretty sad. That was his okay. biggest hit, and he saw none of that money, mm. and that's important for okay. later. Through 63, he saw some su- success. I've seen 63 and 64 being said that was kind of more unremarkable career-wise for him. Okay. His songs, though, he did have decent chart ratings, you know, okay. uh, with his future releases in these years, uh, including three more singles with the Tornadoes. He did seem to be kind of on a downturn, not only with his career but with his personal life as well okay his overall success did not really improve his life if anything it compounded the pressures despite his freedoms he obviously had all of the worries of a self-employed person in a very volatile industry mm-hmm. meek's personal problems also coincided with the rise of the beatles and other groups whose music made his signature style seem dated even though he hadn't really been doing it for that long right in november of 63 he was actually arrested and fined for I saw a lot of different whatever the charge was but basically I think he was charged for allegedly soliciting gay sex in a public bathroom and there's like a lot of stories like what really happened or like but homosexuality was obviously still illegal in the UK so I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if it was just like he kind of like said something to someone in a bathroom and you know mm-hmm. could have been like that but anyway it being illegal also added to his already pretty prominent persona mm-hmm. he was subject to a lot of like blackmail and as well as That's harassment something. So he was a pretty paranoid person being this kind of like really meticulous guy. It had kind of almost manifested through this paranoia. A History Extra article actually stated that, quote, Meek had always been prone to paranoia, but now it had something real to feed off of. Popping amphetamine pills because he became obsessed with the possibility that he was being bugged or that people were stealing his ideas by electronic listening devices. Um, his interests in other worlds deepened, graveyards, spiritualism, the occult. He kind of was paranoid about being outed even more. 
about being harassed and now it had something very real to feed off of he started doing all these drugs festered from there he's already kind of into this like weird dark dark, like spiritualistic thing not good not yeah yes you know nevertheless he adapted to this changing music industry he started working with a wider range of artists kind of just in general branching out musically he did have some more pretty decent hits, never really to the success that he saw with Telstar, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But um, his final chart-topping production was a debut single of the band The Honeycombs called Have I the Right in 1964. So in 66, he had one last hit with The Crying Shames. That was a band. The song was called Please Stay. And this song featured highly emotional vocals that Meek reportedly coaxed out of the band's lead singer by bullying him to the point of tears. So he was actually crying on these vocals? I think so, yeah. Jesus. But people are like, well, it was a hit, you know, because of these emotionally raw vocals or whatever, you know, whatever. But as we can see from these small things, Mm -hmm. he's growing increasingly unhinged, unstable. His financial situation increasingly worse Mm -hmm. obviously his royalties of his greatest hit being held back i'm sure huge huge blow downward spiral truly yeah he was also showing more and more signs of schizophrenia as these years went on and i know i was just talking about like the paranoia but these started to get a lot worse around these these like mid 60s years as well so at one stage meek told jeff goddard his co one of his co-writers that he thought something was quote growing in his head his paranoia was such that phil Spector actually called him one time to express his admiration of meek and meek screamed at him for quote stealing his ideas he reportedly smashed the phone after the conversation was over he believed that specter was stealing his techniques either via his landlady acting as a spy for specter or uh eavesdropping down his chimney or even that the producer had invaded his bathroom studio by supernatural means Okay, um, I will say though, uh, Spectre is fucking nutso, and wouldn't it be funny if he was just like up on the roof with like his ear down the chimney? Yeah, like if anyone were to like, be if like crazy him like that, they I would be like the least surprised. surprised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But still, because Spectre was also kind of like an innovator in this production, building your own sound kind of thing. It was the next new up and coming thing. There was actually one sighting of Meek running down Holloway Road where his apartment studio thing was in his pajamas, screaming that there was a man chasing him with a knife. He also regularly, quote, contacted Buddy Holly via a Ouija board, as well as more distantly deceased historical figures like Emperor Ramses II. So he's like fully in the like, I can talk to ghosts and I think everyone's listening to me and I'm people are going to get me and people are stealing my things. People are going to out me. People are going to whatever. Fully going off the deep end. This has turned into like a haunted episode. It's haunting. I'm not even done with all the haunting things. at night because I am Oh, she's scared. I got to go to bed after this. LOL. Uh Uh-uh. Sorry. He became fascinated with the idea of communicating with the dead. He actually went as far as to set up tape machines in graveyards in attempt to record voices from beyond the grave. In one instance, 
capturing the meows of a cat, believing that he believed that it was speaking in human tones and asking for help. In particular, he had an obsession with Buddy Holly, so we could probably tell from just right now. No. Um, and he also said that Buddy Holly had was communicating with him in his dreams. And he also made a claim one time that he predicted the exact date of Buddy Holly's death, February 3rd, via tarot cards. And listen, I'm just going to put it out here. Like, I'm into, like, the spiritual shit. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. like, I like all the, like, ghosty, supernatural, whatever. I'm a but big this fan is of ghost. Compounded on into yeah. all of these other things. It's just like no one no one helped him. Yeah, what? He seems to just be very alone. He actually started to believe that his apartment contained poltergeists. Oh my god. See, um, that is so scary if you're alone yeah, and you're believing all this stuff yeah. is happening to you. He also believed that aliens were substituting his speech by controlling his mind and that photographs in his studio were trying to communicate with him. So scary. In January January of 1967, it was said that this was his tipping point. And I won't really go in too much of the details of this, but this is kind of an important turning point. And like, obviously, this is the with all this buildup, you know. Well, and also it's like you said before, his first single was in 61 and this is 67. That's six years. It's like his first big signal. He had been doing music for a minute, but still, yeah. But for the first time that he's like actually sort of, you know, having the benefits of all his hard work. And he's being overtaken by schizophrenia and delusion and also just crazy. Added on to like the general stress of being a closeted gay man in a place where it's illegal. Or illegal. That's so. Ugh. But anyway, so he's obviously struggling. Yeah. Let's just get that into there. So in January of 1967, this was his tipping point around this time. He feared that he would be questioned by the police about the very grisly murder called the suitcase murder. And he believed this because this murder was very gruesome. I won't go into details. It was like a young boy, a young man killed in a very horrible way. And the investigators thought that they saw some like underlying quote, like homosexual tendencies or something like that, like, yeah, um, like oh, in the case. Like, sexually assaulted. Yeah. So- must yeah, be a man type right, of thing. right. Yeah. Because of this, the detectives during the investigation said that they intended to interview, quote, every gay man in London. So, you know, oh, although damn. Joe Meek was not in, obviously involved, right? This suitcase he was like, murder, I'm a gay man in London. Yeah, he's like, like they're now, gonna come after me. Yeah, and he's having all the like, everyone's, I'm being bugged. I'm like, right. you know, like, like people are listening, know. like. What if they, you know, so so that was kind of like his tipping point. So on February 3rd, remember that date from a minute Mm -hmm. ago, Buddy Holly's death day. But this is in 1967. Meek killed his landlady, Violet Shenton, and then himself with a single barreled shotgun that he had confiscated from his protege, former Tornadoes bassist and solo star Heinz Burt at his Holloway Road home studio. And unfortunately, I couldn't really find a lot of information about Violet Shenton herself. She obviously owned this building, rented it out to him. In the sources, there were kind of like vague mentions of like, there was always this kind of like underlying tension between the two because of just like the amount of sound that he made in this building, honestly. Mm -hmm. And she would like hit the broom with on the ceiling, you know, the classic like your upstairs neighbors are being annoying and he would kind of 
like I'm going to turn my music up kind of thing. They are obviously argued over noise levels. And it was also said that he still owed a lot of rent to -hmm. her. And that that was also another argument around this point in time. Again, there's not really a lot of information about why or what exactly happened leading up. Not only because he also shot himself, but he was... I think at this point, super isolated from everyone. Right. So no one really was. Or it's just kind of. Yeah. They had no idea. Yeah. Meek's assistant, Patrick Pink, actually believed that the deaths were accidental. Not really other anyone else really thinks that, but he's like very hard set on it. Someone's quoted saying like he believes it was a tragic accident. Joe's landlady, Violet Shenton, was like a mother to him. And Patrick feels that Joe probably called her upstairs to his studio in hope of talking him out of using the gun on himself. And it accidentally went off, which I'm like, I, mm, I don't know about that. Especially Um, because he was paranoid that she was, like, a spy. Yes. Like, there's a lot, like, her being a target is not surprising, unfortunately. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily call this, like, a theory, but there's, like, I guess, like, a motive theory would be kind of, like, he didn't really necessarily believe in the whole, like, truly you're dead after you're dead kind of thing. So people kind of question his motives there in a a way. But like, I'm not afraid of death. Yeah, kind of. And I don't know. I just saw a lot of weird discourse about it which isn't really it's still very upsetting and sad so it's not really relevant I guess but um there's not really like a great way to like wrap it all up unfortunately (laughs) and I'm upset that there's not like too much more information about like her I mean yeah but there is this quote from far out magazine which i thought did it in a tasteful way so yeah quote although the legacy of meek's life was undeniably marred by trouble and terror it's also unmistakably another example of where duality becomes an essential element in assessing art which is so often only done by half on this occasion there's also been has to be a STEM assessment of the society that spawned such a troubled man and what little was done to stop his self-evident slide. However, what is preserved on record and requires much less cautiously judicious interpretation is the sound of a man who changed music forever. Boom. Got him. Exactly. And unfortunately, a very troubling very quick spiral of a very talented and influential musician and a very tragic death of a very innocent woman. Right. And I saw a lot of people really connecting, you know, Phil Spector. I also like kind of was making connections in my head. Maybe it was just kind of like the really crazy fast, like schizophrenia spiral that like uh, Jim Gordon Mm, it kind of like gave me similar vibes to that where it was just kind of like the very end at the very end it was just life is caught up in the mess yeah and then it just ends after that it's very upsetting yeah so super sad but super sad yeah (laughs) not no but and there's no but there's no but ended yeah I'm sorry I I didn't really have a good way to wrap it up. I never do. I never know how to wrap it up. But (laughs) It's kind of hard. It's hard to do. Because you can't put a pretty bow on it. Yeah. I really tried to look her up and there's like only really like a find a grave thing or there's like a, you know. She seems pretty private other than her. It's also kind of like a longer time ago. It's not like forever ago, but it's like. The records of that being on the internet now. Yeah. I bet if we were to go to like Scotland Yard. Yeah. We could find something in a but it, archive over there. But it's also kind of crazy because when you look up Joe Meek, him doing that 
is so buried under all of the people he worked with, all of the songs that he did, all of the techniques that he used, that he pioneered. You really have to kind of like dig a bit, you know? This is not who I was expecting to see at all. Yeah, he did look like a kind of kind of clean cut guy, but a lot of people were like, he's got crazy eyes. I can see that. He's got like, um, he's got big eyes. They're huge. They're ginormous. He They're looks, scary. He looks like it could be a radio or a talk show host. Yeah, definitely. He's got that kind of look. He does. He's always wearing a suit in the studio. Yeah, gross. I also, what? maybe on like a kind of sillier note, Yeah. maybe, possibly, he, <laughs> he actually heard the Beatles like pretty early on in their career yeah. and was like, gave advice to like the record label not to sign them. He was like, that's boring. I don't like that. Wait, that's no. so funny. Yeah, and I, I guess He's he like, did that with space music. And he What's seemed wrong to with you? he seemed to have that with a few very popular artists. Like I saw the Beatles. He turned down like David Bowie <sighs> because he also, I think, from what I kind of gathered, he kind of not only wanted like the sound, but he kind of wanted like the look too. Like he kind of wanted the whole package and the yeah. people that he was working with. And I think he saw them as not like as conventionally attractive or like. Uh, He's like those beetle guys. They're ugly. No. <laughs> Good Lord. <gasps> oh. Terrible. That's funny, though. I thought that was kind of funny, but. I'm going to listen to his space stuff. I didn't actually I listen to it crazy. too much. Yeah. But he literally changed the game, like truly changed the game. And I had no idea that that was his name. Yeah. I've always had a very mad amount of respect for all the people that create. I don't know if he, well, I know he created the spring verb, but I don't know if he like. I don't think he created the compressor in general, but I think he created his own version. I'm sure he did. He definitely. His own type of compressor. uh, The word that came up in every single one, like so many times was just like experimental. I think he was just like so meticulous. And I also think he didn't have that kind of like musician curse that a lot of musicians have. I think he saw the music in a different way Mm -hmm. or he heard it in a different way. I think he like really kind of saw it as this like, machine that he could take apart and add his own things into mm-hmm. and make a new thing true because he's working with these artists yeah and it's not the artist producing their own thing because they would probably not even want him to do anything with it yeah you know right there's not too many people that come around that have like no knowledge of music and are still able to contribute to the sound of it greatly yeah like not a musician themselves kind of exactly. thing yeah because i feel like even now like most engineers and people that did what he's doing now mm-hmm. are musicians and have musical background. They might not play anymore, but they know music. Yeah, I think like to, you don't really get an outsider. Yeah, I feel like that's more like sometimes like the business side. At exactly, least now it's like too. strictly the business. Like yeah. you don't have that influence on the music side, and I think right. I think that variety is kind of necessary. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think that's why it was like so innovative because he saw it in this like way that I think like someone who I don't know knew the industry in and out at the time mm-hmm. or just like was in it, but he doesn't didn't have, really yeah. like think they weren't really able to think about because they had like you know the blinders on. 
Right. Well, and I think like musicians too, like with music, they have so many things to think about. They can't hone in and focus. Yeah. And he is just, he doesn't have that going on. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. I mean, not to say obviously that people can't, like musicians can't be experimental with their sound. That's obviously not what I'm saying. But it's a different, like, it's it's just like a weird, like, point of view that you can get, especially someone so knowledgeable. He obviously was like a quick learner and he self taught himself these really intricate machines that were still like, new at the time you know even it wasn't like he could like look it up <laughs> but well that was crazy yeah here we are dark episode again but you know whatever whatever here we are <laughs> it's the job it's the job we mix it up enough listen to the episodes you like don't listen to the ones you we try don't to keep like. it lighthearted. We- i put in my commentary although i like you said earlier, go go look at some like fun foley videos. Yeah, those are so. Do not relaxing. dare to touch teenage weeping ballads. Yeah, they're not even like inherently spooky sounding songs. But then when you kind of like look at you think of them, you're like, sounded spooky. That was not no. Don't do that because my my skin is still crawling. I feel like it was only spooky for you because I how I described it pre you listening to it. Also, just like that girl in the back, she's like, remember that was scary, Alyssa. That was pretty. Oh, okay. (laughs) I liked it. I'm gonna sleep with all the lights on. I'm going to clothespin my eyelids open. Ew. Tonight is my night not to sleep. You clothespin them open? Like clothespin them open? Um, yeah, you can take my sleeping habits and I'll, I'll take manic. yours. I, I, I steal the manic. Pass the... If you don't have the stick, you can't be manic in this circle. I'm not I'm passing holding my the manic stick. stick. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> you have to, I have turn. stuff to get done, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you for joining us again for another amazing, terrible, crazy episode. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for all the support. As always, we love you all. So much. So much, yeah. I think I'm, like, delirious, truly. Like, I'm, my brain is so mushy. It's fine. I feel you. I like it. I um, love the mush. All I right. like it. Well, we See will. you next week. Yeah, we're going to see you next week. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully with... A special guest. Ooh, yeah. <gasps> mm, who's leave, it gonna be? I don't that know. With you. Ooh, I don't okay, know. Whatever. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Later. <laughs> you like what you hear? Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Tell us what you think on our Twitter or Instagram at Record Crimes Pod. Have a suggestion or something you want to hear on the podcast? Send us an email at recordcrimespod at gmail.com. Oh,